there's this cheat code to good copywriting. The idea is to use the word you more often. Make it less about the story or the product and more about the audience. More directly about you, to connect to you. A thousand songs in your pocket. How you can get ahead. How you can get smarter. But on the other hand, using me or I can be confusing or even go further. If used intentionally, of course. Done right, it can make your work or product more relatable. And yes, relatable gets tossed around. But when done in a considerate way, it's about meeting people where they are. Right? Whether that's a story or a news article, an app, a service, a vaccine clinic, about urban heat, or video games. In a world where trust in institutions and in news is falling every day, and the role of influencers is growing, and the creator economy, as we call it, is growing and becoming more of an option for more people, of course, however limited by privileges like mine, whatever the case, finding the connective tissue between you and your audience is key to connecting, right? To establish a rapport, which can, if nourished thoughtfully, can lead to trust, which can lead to a genuine connection. And for the creator or writer or artist or whatever to go further, to push deeper, to find meaning and bearing in places we as consumers or readers or listeners might not otherwise look for or expect, like in local news or video game reviews or recipes. And I think that matters a lot. We're not only losing trust, but feeling that loss with so much coming at us all the time, every day. We notice and feel a lack of connection. We feel adrift often and unmoored. I'm sure you feel it too. And so for me at least, I am moved by people whose work and art I can connect with, whether I'm seeking it out or not. And as you guys know, I, I try really hard to bring on guests, uh, most often with very different lived experiences than my own, to expand my own perspective, to understand what's happening to more people, uh, to get better at what I do here, and, and frankly, to help more people. And often that means trying to have a common starting point, right? Something we both give a shit about, something we both enjoy, like, well, give a shit about kids' cancer, nobody enjoys that. We enjoy dinosaurs, or in today's case, video games. And then we go from there. Because connection matters. Who we get our COVID information from, or our weather forecasts, we get that information from, it matters, but also helps us understand more and more where we can find comfort and why. My guest today is Swapna Krishna, and Swapna is an amazing writer and journalist covering space, uh, science, tech, and pop culture, and where they all intersect. She writes everywhere from, oh gosh, Fast Company to StarWars.com, from StarTrek.com to Business Insider, the LA Times, Bitch Magazine, Bustle, Mental Floss, and more. Swapna has appeared on a million excellent podcasts you've heard. She's been at Comic-Con, and she's the co-host of her own podcast, The Desi Geek Girls Show, and the new host of PBS's show, Far Out. And Swapna often writes some of the most empathetic tech and pop culture commentary on the web. We're still calling it that. I am, because I'm ancient. The point is, I've been reading her work for years as part of a fire hose of other tech and sci-fi content. And Swapna has this unique ability to say, hey, this is what this big thing means to me. And it makes you feel like, oh yeah, me too. Or wait, I didn't think about it like that. And again, I think that skill and effort matters a lot today. So Swapna and I have very different backgrounds and lives, but I trust her and her writing. And I'm thoroughly enjoying her new show and her efforts to try and meet people where they are on science issues and pop culture fandoms, uh, big and small. So this conversation goes to some unexpected places, uh, like many of mine recently, and I'm really enjoying that. So, so many of you have written in to express the same, so I hope you enjoy this one as well. And as always, please let me know. You can always reach me at questions at importantnotimportant.com or on Twitter at Quinn Emmett. Swapna Krishna, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. 
I will try to live up to that. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> we like to start with one important question to set the tone for this fiasco. Instead of Swapna, what's your amazing, incredible life story beat by beat? I like to ask Swapna, why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> Because I tell people why should they should care about science and space, which I think is so important because in a world where like we're constantly getting pings, we're constantly getting notifications, we're constantly being told why we should care about things that feel like they're out of our control and why should we should always be activists. Preserving that sense of wonder and that optimism and that hope is so important. I love that answer. You're amazing. That's it. We're done. This was great. No, I think that's really great. When I was making all of my notes and, and, and doing my research in a non-stalkery way, that reflects a little bit to something I want to come back to, which is your work is actually really personal, which is super interesting. So I want to dig into that. Look, you're writing, and again, you go to your website or read your stuff forever, and I feel like I've been inadvertently reading your things for forever here because it's like Fast Company and Engadget and Shondaland and StarWars.com and StarTrek.com and Bustle. Like we were saying, not to say that there, there aren't other examples of this out there, right? But in a world of, like, endless tech and pop culture reviews and commentary and hot takes, you seem to intentionally thread your work, at least. To me, it seems that way, with this ethos of this is what this means to me or this mm -hmm. is how this show or game affected me. And it's very mm -hmm. relatable, and it gives readers a way in that's not just like, here's the specs, right? Or here's the fan service. By the way, love those too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But recently, I, I can't remember if it was right around when we were scheduling the first time or rescheduled. Enter Cozy Grove. Oh. And you did this because we were driving back from some swim meet or something and he really wanted something and we don't break out the switch that often. I know you love the switch. I had just read your piece about the snowstorm and it is such a kind and gentle game. And again, you made it relatable in another way because you're like, oh, look, my switch is amazing. But you also talked about like how games on your phone are great. Anyways, it's another example of like how your work meets people where they are. So thank you, one. But also, you know, why is this sort of connective tissue between how we live and what we consume? Why is that so important to you? That's a really good question. And I don't know that I've ever gotten that one before. So I, part of it comes just from the person I am. I actually also have ADHD and that okay. you can kind of see it in the breadth of what I do. I do really write at the intersection of space, science, technology, and pop culture. And I write about all those things often all at once. In the same article, I will talk about all those things. But I think a lot of it is just to really be able to focus on something, I need to care about it. Mm -hmm. Like that is that that's what I have realized. I am not good at just doing things because they pay well or doing things because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. It's a big part of why I'm a freelancer and it's a big part of what I choose to write about. I like to bring you know, the personal into what I work about. That doesn't mean my work is always personal. I definitely do like reported work and, you know, sure. work where I am not involved in the narrative at all. But there's always a thread of I am reporting on this because I want to or because it is important to me or it is personal to me. And so a lot of my more personal stuff, like the gaming column I do at Wired is very personal because I found that when I became a parent, um, I have a, you know, three and a half year old, one of like my real respites and one of my real places of solace and one of the few things I do to relax is I play video games and I was looking for people like me and I couldn't find it. Like a lot of the gamer stuff is like you said, like it's, it's, it's very, it's a little more technical and I am not knocking it because God knows I Google, how do I beat this boss and, you know, X all for the sure. time. So we need yeah. that content. Sometimes when I'm looking for something like this and I'm looking for writing on the internet, I just want to give myself permission to do things. It comes from, I think, our generation and our obsession with productivity. I feel like I need to be working all the time. I feel like if I am genuinely just taking a break, it is somehow I, I could be doing more, I could be doing it better, I could be doing it in a more efficient way. And a lot of it was just finding the permission to be like, no, you need to relax, you need to, and you can tell yourself that all the time, but you can tell yourself that, but you have to like feel it and internalize it. So part of that column and the reason I wanted to write it is like not only giving myself permission to 
you know, letting myself off the hook, but if other people were looking for that, letting them off the hook too. But more generally, the thing about my writing being very personal, it's because I find that that's a very effective way to communicate and sure. get people interested in what I'm interested in. I have so many people who have told me, like, I watch your science videos on TikTok and I don't know anything or really care about space, but you're so enthusiastic that it makes me want to learn more. Sure. No, I, I love that. I mean, you're right. It's like people have to give a shit. They, ha- they have to have a why. Yes. Like you, you inserting yourself into that in such a personal way is it's I mean, I guess you could say uh, provocative in, mo- in one way, but in like such a constructive way in the sense of just like, look, this applies to me and let me tell you a story, right? And and that's yeah. what the train one was so amazing. But I also loved, mm-hmm. and again, I know these are two of the more recent ones, but uh, go back to some of your past stuff in, in a moment. But you talked about how you accidentally stopped doom scrolling. And yes. I thought that was so interesting because, again, uh, so my wife got her ass kicked by COVID and we locked her uh, away for <laughs> – and she locked herself away. And we were like, no one else is getting it. But very quickly ran out of things to do and she was just like, I'm just doom scrolling so much. And I thought we didn't directly use the mansion game you mentioned, but I thought about that line where you essentially said, look, I love my Switch, but doom scrolling is on my phone and I need yeah. something there – that's going to make me stop doing that besides just like take Twitter off your phone, do these things. Right. Exactly. Like I've done all those things. Right. And again, it's like, it's meeting people where they are. It's not just like go buy a switch. It's like, great. You can't find one for six months or whatever, but like you've got your phone and there's got to be something there that can help. Right. And not not everybody can afford to drop $350 just on a whim to, you know, like, so it's just, your phone is there. It's accessible. Pretty much everybody has some edition of a smartphone. Might not be the most recent, but it doesn't have to be for a lot of these mobile games. We're not trying to play like Elden Ring on your phone. It's like, these are very simple games that aren't usually too demanding. It's funny because it's a little bit of a two-parter. The first one is like, I am so embarrassed at how much I'm, how addicted I am to this mobile game because like there's some sort of internalization writing about video games on the internet as a woman, as a woman of color, as sure. a person who prides herself on being, like the column is called casual gamer. There's a lot of just toxicity around that. And I'm, sure. I'm like, I'm so embarrassed because I should be playing like Elden Ring or the latest, greatest RPG. And instead, all I've played for two weeks is this mobile game on my phone. And then I realized, like, I looked at my screen time and I'm like, I'm spending an hour a day on this instead of Twitter. And that is key for me. And that's what makes it so personal. Like, look, I, I love all those games from, from GoldenEye to the larger worlds, and, and that stuff is great. But, uh, you know, I got three kids asking for snacks all of the time. And this is one of the things you talked about with Cozy Grove is how it, it tracks a log for you. And it's so gentle and it's so intentionally kind about the way you come back to it versus some of these games. Like you said, I got to Google six different ways to this chat room about how, how I can defeat this thing. And I'm like, oh, guess what? I'm out of time. We got to go swim practice. Like, I, exactly. I don't have that. I don't want to have to like keep a notebook on like what I need to be doing next to my game. I just want it to like to like log in and it sure. be like just not to think about it. But like you said, it's also sort of unintentionally. It became this one for one replacement for Twitter, which is like, have I caught up? Am I on this thing? And for some of us, that can be part of our job, which is fine. But yeah. we can also do that in an intentional way and find mm-hmm. things. Like you said, sometimes you can't just take them off because guess what? Then you open it in Safari and yep. you're like, well, guess what? I'm fucking back, <laughs> you know? Yep. And, but oh, yes. having something you want to do on the same device does matter. That's the key. That's the key. Let's talk about Far Out, which I love. <laughs> it's a delight. It is. I love it. So it's fairly new, right? Mm-hmm. How many episodes mm-hmm. in are we? We are just two episodes in. Third episode is dropping at the end of July. This is very exciting. Mm-hmm. So... I love the first one about getting old, and then the second one, which I was curious. It's a little more near term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So here's my question. It's described as exploring the future of humanity on this big, messy planet called Earth. Great. Yes. Episode two is about things that we talk about all the time here, which is essentially mm-hmm. depleted groundwater and desalination mm-hmm. and water mm-hmm. recycling and how parts of the world are running out and things like that. I'm curious, basically, how are you planning the content for something like this? Is it is it your baby? Is it PBS somewhere in between? How far out are we going to get? Et cetera, et cetera. It is very much a, a collaboration. We come up with the topics. We film and produce PBS is by PBS North Carolina, the okay. affiliate, um, but we work very closely with PBS Digital Studios headquarters. But we come up with all the topics at North Carolina, me and I collaborate with my producers and my researchers, and we come up with 
the topics, but we do get approval and feedback from digital studios. But it's very much like our baby. And mm -hmm. it's been up to us to kind of figure out the crux of the show. Like, where are we going to focus? These are eight to 11 minute episodes. And we're talking about huge topics. Yeah. So one of the real challenges we've run into is getting as narrow as possible and getting as detailed as possible because we would rather go deep than broad. Mm -hmm. So how do we do that on a huge topic? And that's been a thing we're still constantly talking about and working out. In terms of how far out are we going to go, that depends on, I would love to go like 50, 100 years out, but it also depends on how much our experts are willing to speculate, which experts are usually pretty hesitant to speculate much more than like 10 to 15 years. So what we're trying to do is balance and respect that, which, you know, you can't predict the future with also being like, here's a really cool thing we're hoping we're working towards. It's been very exciting. And I'm a writer on the episodes, but like, it's been my first foray into on-screen work and doing all of this. I do, you know, TikTok videos, but that's very different than like an eight to 10 minute YouTube video. True. And so there's been a big learning curve for me in terms of like learning how to write for this kind of show. Mm -hmm. Going deep in eight to 11 minutes is pretty it's difficult. Challenge. It's a challenge, yeah. but it's funny. It reminds me of, and I, I was talking to someone recently about, you know, growing up and in one example, your teacher could say, write an essay about anything. And I'm like, I, I don't know what to do. But mm -hmm. if your teacher's like, write 400 words on what you did the last week of summer vacation, great. Let's do it. Yeah. Constraints, like, makes the world go round for me. No, I'm the same way. If you ask me, what's a book you read recently, like, you enjoyed? I'm like, do I read? Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Books? What is this book thing? Right. I really like thrillers. Can you recommend a thriller? I'm like, oh, yeah. Here's, like, eight great. I've read recently that I enjoyed. It's just uh, my brain needs that constraint. So I actually, once we come up with a topic... Uh, it is a lot easier to kind of narrow in on what's the like, like, because the topics are still really big, like mm -hmm. uh, 103, which is coming out at the end of July is the future of cannabis. That's a huge topic. Yeah. So how do we narrow that? Where are we going to narrow in? What are we specifically looking at? And how do we get and this is very important for PBS and the Terra channel, which is the YouTube channel, the specific PBS YouTube channel we're on, how do we get deep into the science and technology? Those mm -hmm. are the challenges and the questions we're asking ourselves. It's funny when you say it's so much easier if someone says like, hey, what's a, what's a specific thriller, you know, published between 1995 and 1998 versus, yeah. you know, write about anything. And I think about, again, kind of coming back to this, the first time I realized like my kid had a lot going on in his brain was he must have been I don't know, two-ish, something like that. And we spent a few months while my wife was making a movie in New York. And usually we're, we were in Los Angeles for most of his childhood. Now we're in Virginia. But we're in New York and busy roads outside of all this. And, of course, he's very much in – I mean, you're in it now, like sort of toddler stage. And he was having a hard time falling asleep. And I said, what are you thinking about, buddy? And he took the deepest breath and he named basically every construction truck that's ever been in existence and every automobile that had gone by the door that day. And I was like, oh, shit, there's a lot going on in there. You know, yeah. at any given time. So and I thought recently about, you know, when he gets projects at school or when he's working on things and, and or when I ask him what's going on or what do you want to write about or what's this homework supposed to be about? And you can see him just being like, it could be anything and everything at the same time and how important yeah. it is for me to help try to provide those constraints for him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm seeing the same thing like my similar in my toddler, like he's just like it's getting harder and harder for him to fall asleep. And I can just tell he's thinking, 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 like running through the day. And he'll like randomly like talk about, he's very like only child. And also I am like this as well. So I get it very particular about his stuff. Mm -hmm. So like his thing is he constantly thinks about other kids coming over, uh, like kids from school and stuff and like touching his stuff. And I'm like, mm -hmm. kid, like nobody's going to come over and touch your stuff unless right. you want them to. Right. And so like, it's, it's just so interesting, but yeah, I think giving those constraints and I think, for kids, for adults, for all of us is really important. And so one of the things on the show, I never want somebody to come away from it and feel like that was just an overview. I would much rather be like, okay, but what about X, Y, Z and A, B and C aspect of it that you didn't address? I would rather get very deep into one aspect of it, which is I think what we do for cannabis. Water was a really good example of a broader overview of a topic. And that was the episode I was like, okay, we really need to like narrow because that one was a little bit 
broader than what I would like to do. That being said, I think it's a great episode. I'm very proud of it. And like the illustrations and the graphics are incredible. Yeah. But I want to get a little more into the nitty gritty of the science and the technology. And that's what we do going forward. And I'm really excited. It's hard. I mean, when you tackle anything... (laughs) climate, water, food, whatever it might be related, there's 70 different strings you can pull. So exactly. so it's hard to say, like, well, are we going to run out of water? It's like, I mean, how much time do you have? You know, I like know, we can exactly. do this all day. But I thought you guys actually did a very nuanced version of that because it, I do think it also prompts more questions to people who would probably then type into YouTube, like, desalinate waste and brine and what do you mean groundwater and the stuff is sinking and and you know i think that's helpful yeah and that's what i hope that's what i want like our show is just the jumping off point it's eight to ten minutes if you're a writer my script goal is always 1500 words which is so short oh yeah (laughs) that's so short and including like the expert quotes like it Mm -hmm. is so short so like just doing everything i can with every single one of those words But also, there's a tone thing here because we're talking about so much, you know, future of water, future of aging. These are serious topics, and I don't want to ever depress people, even Mm -hmm. if the reality is scary. Like, the reality of our water situation is very scary. I never want to moralize. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to tell people what to think. I don't want to moralize, but I also want to leave people with some grain of people are working on this. People are thinking about this. There are good people doing good work. And like, sure. so that's like, that's another hard needle to thread with a lot of these topics, especially when as, as we get more, we're going to talk more about climate. We're going to talk more about all of that. And it's hard. It's a hard needle to thread. The, the not moralizing part is definitely hard to do. I've certainly had to pick some lanes and also acknowledge I'm coming from this incredibly privileged place to be able mm-hmm. to do it. But you really do have to almost like write out your contract with yourself about like, hey, this is how we're going to do things because kind of fumbling around is a little difficult, but it does take time. What kind of itch does it scratch for you to be on camera doing this versus Mm -hmm. your all your journalism? I mean, TikTok, you're obviously on camera too, but this is like so much more structured and almost it's it's so weird to say YouTube is old school, but you know what I mean? Like versus TikTok and everything versus your incredible podcast, which I also love and we're going to talk about that. It's very new. It's a whole, first of all, it's a whole new audience for me, video Mm -hmm. generally. So I started, I actually got on TikTok when I got this job offer because I was like, I need to get comfortable with myself on video fast. Sure. Because I wasn't at that point and the way I got comfortable with listening to myself was doing my own podcast and editing my own voice. So the reason I got on TikTok was I need to be comfortable with my face and like me talking. I think it's reaching a whole new audience. I think that is really important. And I think in some ways, like it's it's just a lot more visible. I am the host, you're seeing my face. It's much more personal than reading somebody's words, even if the content isn't more personal. Like I get much more personal, for example, in my, you know, Wired column than I do on Far Out. Although there are definitely parts of Far Out where I do get personal, you'll see it in the cannabis episode. But it is much more personal and on screen because you are seeing my face and uh, hearing my voice. And that is really cool because I feel like I'm connecting with people in a way I haven't before. But it's also really scary in a lot of ways, very intimidating to be the face of something like this. It's something you get used to. In some ways you don't ever get used to people like slinging around your thumbnail in Slack, like your face in Slack. And like, they're just talking about like the illustrations around your face, but you're like, oh my God, that's just my face. It's just become a part of the production. And it's a very weird, a little bit out of body experience (laughs) to be like, oh, I'm just a part of this production in a lot of ways. I'm integral to it, of course, but like when it comes to post-production, I'm just a part of the production. Yeah, sure. That's been really interesting. And like, it's scary, but it's, it's really cool. All I ever want to do with any of my work is reach people where they are and Mm -hmm. And this is a new way to do that. Are you comfortable yet seeing your face everywhere all of the time on these things? Seeing my face, no. Um, no, 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 no. I don't know that I will ever <laughs> get there, but doing the work, yeah. Like I am comfortable on the green screen. I'm comfortable mm-hmm. filming like in the studio. And that's partially because like my team and producers are so good. I was so intimidated to use a teleprompter for the first time. I was like, I'm gonna mess this up. I'm absolutely mm. gonna mess this up. But no, it actually went really well. I don't know that I will ever get used to that part of it. Just seeing my face everywhere. It's funny, we've just spent 15 years in LA. My wife is a 
a very hardworking and successful screenwriter and producer, and so we've got a number of friends who, who make their lives on screen in a variety of ways, and it's incredible. I would say the majority of them, if you ask them if they watch their own movies, they're like, absolutely not. Like, literally yeah. never. I will never do that. There's a, a variety of reasons. I mean, listening to myself just on audio, I'm like, that guy should never be allowed to do anything ever again. Yeah. And it's weird because I have a very different relationship to my TikToks than the show. I have trouble watching the show. The TikToks I'm actually fine with. I don't have a problem watching them. And maybe it's just because I'm used to it. But like the show, I still, maybe it's because I'm not in control of it. And I mm. know, I don't know. I don't know. I have trouble with the show. But sure. it's so the thing is, it's so good. I have watched both the episodes and just like from behind a pillow because I love <laughs> the art style and like the it's really, really colorful. Cool. Yeah, I think that is important because I think science and technology can be so, not drab, because I don't want to put it that way, because it's cool, but the color palette is often not, you don't associate with bright colors. One thing I want to do is if you love bright sparkly things and you love like bright pink and you want to wear glitter nail polish, hey, I'm wearing, you know, bright orange and pink nail polish right now. And that is absolutely valid. And you can bring those things to science. Like that doesn't mean you're not serious. I'm so excited with the color palette. And that's why I try to wear like bright clothes on camera and stuff like that. I want to send that message that you can be a serious science person and still like love bright colors or love glitter or love like poofy skirts or whatever yeah. people love. I think it's great. And again, it's meeting an even greater variety and volume of people where they are that mm-hmm. for a very long time, uh, no one has made that effort. So yeah. I think it's awesome. It reminds me, one of, my, one of our earliest guests and one of my children's favorite humans is Emily Calandrelli, who's been doing oh stuff Oh my forever. God, Emily's one of my close friends. Oh, that's awesome. I want to just say, she has a little empire now. Oh like, yeah. And she could be so standoffish, but instead she has been the most like helpful, kind person and helping me adjust to all of this. Like even, I just want to shout her out because we've been close friends for a long time, but like I have been so out of my depth and a lot of this on camera stuff and she has been the best human. I mean, she's always been amazing. Her Netflix show that my children have probably watched 40 times that again, bright colors, she shot it pregnant. It's incredible. And like, again, talk about, I, I mean, I can't even imagine like not feeling comfortable on screen at times, but like Yes, it's quote-unquote for kids, but again, it's not this sort of staid, stoic version of it. It's just like, let's celebrate this with all the pomp and fireworks, you know, and and glitter and slime and all that stuff. So, I love it. Can we talk about Desi Geek Girls? (laughs) Yes. Because it's amazing, and you've actually been doing this for a long time. You guys are 70-something, 75 episodes in? Yeah, something like that. 75 episodes, five. We just had our five-year anniversary in February, which blows my mind, because when we started it, I was like, there's no way I could commit to a regular podcast, but we've been doing it. Well, it turns out, and you have talked recently, you and your amazing co-host, Preeti, who's got her Spider-Man book coming out. Very exciting. Next Tuesday, everybody, please pre-order Spider-Man Social Dilemma. Oh, my God. Yeah, Yeah. my kids are all over it. It's going to be great. Yes. But it's amazing because you're like, I don't know how I could commit to so many episodes of this. And it turns out in one of your recent episodes, you were talking about literally the amount of content out there. It's impossible. Yeah. And it's funny because I thought recently I was telling a friend, they were asking me what I thought of Obi-Wan or something. And I said, you know, I think 15-year-old me would be very much not pleased with 39-year-old me who's like, there's too much. It's too much Marvel. It's too much Trek or Tolkien or, or whatever it might be would just be like, what's your problem, man? But it is. It's it's relentless. <laughs> like It is. No, like people have been asking us, like, when are you going to do Miss Marvel? Because I think we covered the first episode and we haven't done anything. And the dirty secret is I haven't watched past episode two. Because, when like, would you? I just don't have time. Like I travel, you know, I travel to film because of like the relentless YouTube schedule and we're a little playing a little bit of catch up. I'm writing like five scripts and filming five scripts in two months. Like, I don't have time. And so like, that's what we were just talking. And one of the things I love about doing a podcast with my best friend that is not like a job is when one of us gets behind or one of us gets overwhelmed, we're just like, we're not, we're not filming until it's fun. Like we only film when it's fun. You have to have that outlet. That is key. And that's why we both stuck with it because the second one of us is stressed out or she's had like a million book deadlines because she's a superstar. And I'm just like, no, it's not a conversation. Like, let's just wait until we both are excited about it or we both, like, you know, want to talk about these things to get away from the world for a while. And then we'll record. It's interesting because, you know, some of the most popular podcasts for the from the past five, six years are these very friendship-based ones, right? It could be mm-hmm. two non 
celebrity type friends. I think there was one, I remember the New York Times wrote an article a few years ago. It was just two sort of like 35-year-old women who call each other and talk about things that apply to 35-year-old women. And the hordes of people listen to it because that's incredibly relatable. And it's easy. It's a friendship you feel like you're part of. You can turn off any time you want. There are no strings attached. And it seems to bring the host so much joy. And it's interesting because you pointed out it's much easier and it's much more manageable in the long term if you're like, look, we're not doing it unless it brings joy. And it's hard because when these shows get really popular, it turns into a business and an obligation yes. and a whole thing, right? And that can suck the joy out of these things. I have to say, like, you and your amazing co-host make these pop culture conversations so personal. So I want to yeah. talk about Girardi and Picard. Okay. Because there's a show I haven't looked forward to for a very long time, like Picard. And season two was interesting. There's a lot going on there. It was a lot, yeah. And you made this point that I couldn't get away from when I was on my Stairmaster watching Picard, which is how that show dealt with uh, childhood and mental illness and how maybe it's not so great to lock people in what seems to be a room or a cave from the 18th century, but also the 23rd century. And you said, and I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. Again, I, I thought about this because of everything that's going on right now, which is what matters for the story is how this little boy interpreted and processed this information for his entire life, right? Yeah. And in a world where pop culture, whether it's Solo or Picard, we're always going like, why are they this way? And how do they get this way? And they took this on in a really <laughs> interesting, some people loved it, some people did not so much like it way. But I'm constantly thinking about how to inform and educate and involve my very privileged kids in this incredible world they're inheriting, but a world that's increasingly relatively perilous in a lot of ways at school or in the heat, whatever it might be, but also a world where they're obligated to help people and solve problems and take care of themselves. So when you guys talked about that, I, I thought again about how you make your work so personal. I'm curious how you think about that challenge as a mom. Oh God, all the time, like all the time. I'm of the opinion where I'm going to inflict trauma on my kid because every parent does it to every kid. Like I'm going to do it. I just at least want to be cognizant enough so it's not the same trauma that was inflicted on me. Like, you know, like it's just, and that's, so that's, that's one thing in terms of like bringing it, like in terms of parenting. And the second thing is my job isn't to make my kid into who I want him to be or who mm-hmm. I think he should be or, uh, you know, my goals, my dreams. My job is to help him figure out who he is and become the best version of that. Mm-hmm. And everything I write and everything I do, even if it's not about parenting in any way, is comes through that lens. Like, I was a person who came into parenting. I wasn't sure I ever wanted to be a parent growing up. I wasn't sure that being a parent was for me, but I was one of those people who was so transformed by the experience of, but now everything I do, I do for him. You know, even if it's like, you know, I'm writing about space, but I'm doing it for my kid because I don't care if if space is one of his interests growing up. I don't, if he decides like, mom, Star Trek isn't for me, that's fine. You find something that's for you, but I want him to see his mom doing something she loves and talking about Mm. something she loves and enjoying things she loves and sharing that with the world and giving that back to other people. That's what I want him to see. It's not, I want him to, I love, of course I want him to love space. Of course I do. Mm. But if he doesn't, that's his choice and that's the person he is. And that's absolutely fine. But I want to set the example of him seeing me do these things that I love and be passionate about something. I don't care what you're passionate about. Be passionate about something because it's so important and it's so necessary in the world we live in right now. And so that's like, I bring that thought to everything I do, like in terms of what do I want my kid to take away from this? Mm -hmm. It is like integral in everything I do. I think a lot of the way I talk about things and a lot of the way I interact with things has changed since I had a kid. Before, I've always written and talked about personal stuff, but I think the tenor of it has changed. It used to do it because I felt like it was the best way to, like I talked about representation a lot because I, you know, and like the importance of that because I felt like it was the best way to make myself heard on a very noisy internet. And now I do it, I still talk about similar things, but I do it in a different way because Mm -hmm. now I do it because I want to have these conversations so my kid sees me engaging in these things and having these conversations because they're important to have. 
Sure. I get it. As a writer, anytime you're giving backstory, right, whether it's one of your articles or it's a movie or a TV show or some beloved character from when we were growing up and now they're like, this is why he had to leave his family's winery all the time, right? It's always a choice and, and it dives, whether it's pop psychology or more grounded stuff, into sort of who we are and why we are who we are and who shaped us and how they shaped us and why, Mm -hmm. whether, like you said, it's intentional, like you're going to love these seven things and that's the way we do it. Or it's just Mm -hmm. like, find your thing, but here's a model of what I love and why I love it and how I interact with the world. For me, it seems like it's increasingly a choice in how I interpret those things. Because it, like you said, all of a sudden you just see everything through this lens, right? Yes. Of of parenting and kids and like, oh, holy Mm -hmm. shit, I'm affected. Like you said, I'm going to inflict some trauma on this child. I hope it's different. And I, at least I'm self-aware that I'm doing it, right? Yes, exactly. I think the self-awareness is a big deal. Like, I think being aware that, like, we're all going to do it. Like, it's part of parenting. Like, but just be aware of what I am bringing to this from my own experiences and try Mm. not to replicate that. Right. Don't lock him in a cave would be great. Yes, I mean, just, just, I think parenting 101, don't lock people in Basic rooms. stuff, like, if dad's cutting a sinkhole out, like, we're going to go outside and watch it, don't lock him in a yes. cave. Yes. You, you know, it seems, it's, it's a pretty decent list. It's a good, good starter list. If we can go back a little further, and if you don't want to get into that, you can say no, and we'll cut this out. You wrote an article for Engadget in 2018, maybe, about how... Pregnancy apps. It would have been probably 2018, yeah, because I was pregnant then, so. Your child's three and a half, but it was also 100 years ago. You talked about how those, again, super personal, hey, all these fancy Mm -hmm. trackers and stuff failed me, for, and these are the seven reasons, right? Those devices and apps and such have taken an even more interesting turn recently with, turns out, there's no data privacy whatsoever and abortion Mm -hmm. laws and all these things. Moral of the story has always sort of been, I mean, you look at what AFTC is trying to do with location data, which like they're selling your data every day to everyone. Yes. Random smart home device that's not encrypted by default, like maybe don't get one Mm -hmm. or give it all Mm -hmm. your info. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not great Mm -hmm. to just put your period into any app made by anybody, whatever, because the benefits are kind of marginal. And also turns out now maybe they can send you to jail. Yeah. I'm curious, thinking now after everything has happened, how you would add to that article or how you would rethink it for yourself or for other people who might be considering using those things? Do you feel like there's more, as Apple has added finally some period stuff and they're a little more trustworthy, but nobody's perfect. Like, have you thought about that? How would you think about that kind of going forward for folks? I think that's a really very good question. It can be so complicated in terms of period tracking for people who menstruate. Like, there's like a few sides of it. And it's interesting because one thing I also bring to this is infertility. So still have secondary infertility post having a first kid. So bringing that into this, like period tracking, ovulation tracking, tracking IVF cycles, Mm -hmm. like having something to track all of that that could have incorporated because like it's so funny i thought about doing a little bit of a quote-unquote follow-up to that article with Mm -hmm. like tracking my ivf cycle have been i'm not going through ivf anymore if like i just i decided we're done one kid happy done but when i was going through it like i thought a lot about whether i wanted to write about this experience and talk about like how difficult it was to manage because nothing like even those like even the period tracking apps that are help, supposed to help you track that stuff, they try to predict your cycle. So if you have like an extra long cycle because you're going through IVF, it messes up everything. Sure. Like, oh no, I don't normally have a 35 day, you know, menstrual yeah. cycle. It's just because I was on medication. And the next one's know? 13, right? Exactly. And so like, it's so funny. And then it's not funny. It's, it's frustrating because then I went through that and then going through everything with the Roe v. Wade and abortion stuff where it's just like, take it all off. And it's so hard because those, there's a few sides to it because those apps make things so much easier. I am lucky to naturally have a very, very like clockwork period. It is Mm -hmm. very easy for me to just put the data in my calendar, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people don't. A lot of people, and a lot of people really have found value from those predictive algorithms. Like a lot of people have found value from that. And like, it's very, very sad to me that now the options are basically, it's best to just delete all that data and store that locally. But like, 
it's so sad to me that that is the case. And in terms of like pregnancy tracking, yeah, I wouldn't track a pregnancy right now as a person who's had a miscarriage. Like just, I wouldn't do that online. And that is so frustrating and sad to me. And I'm, I'm really hoping people as the time passes, I'll put it that way. Mm. Uh, I hope people start flagging this stuff. A lot of what I write is, is somebody else gonna write this or do I need to be the person who write this, who writes mm. this? Cause you know, we talked a lot about when, what I choose to write in terms of like the personal stuff. Sure. Is it gonna be somebody else? I've talked a bit here and there about infertility. I haven't written about it because it's kind of a family decision to write about that. And sure. I haven't gotten there yet. I might do it at some point. By the way, just to interject and we can cut this out if necessary, but. I get it. My wife and I did a rounds IVF and had miscarriages and all these things. So I'm both inapplicable to talk about it because I was not the person receiving the shots and all that yeah. stuff. But I get it. And you're right. It's a family decision. It's complicated and it's hard. I will just say between yeah. you and me, I would not talk about it here if I was not comfortable talking about totally it. So it. like there's also a difference between talking about it on a podcast where like it's more closed group than like sure. putting it on a Twitter or on sure. a website. Of course. But I haven't decided to talk about that. And I think maybe with some more some more distance from it, I mm. might be happy and, you know, willing to share my experiences in hopes that they might help somebody else. Because it is, you go into infertility so hopeful and so, like, upbeat that you'll have a positive outcome. And, you know, I didn't. Like, I, so hard. I, I didn't. There's just loss after loss after loss on top of, it's hard. It is so hard and we don't talk about it. And then on top of that, having to worry about, like, if you do get pregnant and have a miscarriage, somebody, like, the feds knocking, you know, at your door. Like, it's so much. I, I, it's, it's, it sucks. It sucks. Thank you for sharing all that, of course. When my wife and I went through it, it was 8 to 12-ish years ago. And so much has changed technology-wise since then. And on the one hand, I would have been, like you said, if you go into IVF full of hope, it's a tough one because you should probably remember why you're there, which is it's hard. Even with all the most incredible tools and magic and money in the world, and we were so lucky to have all that and still failed over and over again. Yeah. But I think now, if I could go back, whatever, 10 months before the Roe v. Wade stuff became more clear that it was going to go the way it's going. If I put myself there and look back 10 years, I'd think like, boy, some of this technology would have been really great because we didn't have any of that. I mean, iPhones were two yeah. years old. You couldn't even call an Uber at that point. The idea that my wife could track her period or any of these things on her watch, much less more complicated IVF things or or pregnancies or whatever. Our pregnancy app was just like, congrats, it's the size of a cherry tomato. And you're like, that's so cool. Look at what we can do. I mean, compared to now and the, and the data and the algorithms, it's very primitive. But at the same time, it comes back to this question of, trust and responsibility and accountability of the companies that build these things to not just help people on the surface, but then not to immediately go and sell that data. Again, yes. skip the Roe v. Wade part for a minute. I mean, we look at the markup does an incredible job of covering this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis of like, hey, these companies are selling your shit literally all of the time, right? Yeah. And now mm -hmm. that's so much more complicated, but it's actually turned back on these companies a little bit going like, hey, guess what? You're accountable for that data and we're going to knock on your door. And so maybe don't collect it. But here's the problem, because a lot of things can be true at once. And we talk about this with climate and COVID and stuff, which is they can also be really helpful to folks. So it's really hard yeah. when you said, maybe the best answer is delete it. That sucks for a lot of that people sucks. who really need help. Or just women. We had an incredible uh, scientist on, Dr. Elizabeth Russo, who's designed sort of one of the first genetic tests to help you pick a birth control that doesn't make you super depressed because there's so many options and they're just gnarly, right? And again, I've never gone through that, but I have seen the indirect effects of that. And that stuff is really helpful. But again, you're going, yeah, that could really help me. But like, I'm just giving yeah. away this data that now, holy shit, the implications are gnarly behind that. And again, it sucks because yeah. it can be really helpful. And someone wrote an article that was, I think, it was pretty brief uh, and, and not to say anything about the article and art author that didn't go very deep, but it was essentially like, Again, no one's perfect, especially corporations, but like Apple, you have an opportunity here to like really triple down on your privacy bullshit and yes. take not only make all your tracking better, but to make it completely encrypted and locked down and say like, we believe that this is an important thing to do and a service to provide and that we're $2 trillion and we can do it, but that also we want to do it as safely as we can. Again, it's hard because so many things can be true at once. No, it's true. And like, it's really easy to say, delete it. But yeah. would you delete your Gmail? 
I mean, same principle. Like, how do we think, you know, we're the product when we all use Google product, you know, quote unquote, free Google products. We are the product. It's very easy to say, especially if you aren't reliant on these apps, if you haven't gone through the heartache of infertility or you don't have like PCOS or some of these other things. Just shitty and predictable periods. Right. It's really easy to say, just delete the app when this thing has made your life markedly better and easier. And now, like, because of what's going on in the world, it just it sucks. It sucks, frankly. <laughs> I try to, and again, it's very easy from, from my position, both biologically and in general from behind a microphone, to say, okay, companies, like, you've amassed enormous power more than most governments. Like, mm-hmm. I hope you're taking this as an opportunity, like with climate or COVID or whatever, to just do the right thing and say, we're just going to do the right thing and we're going to figure it out. I hope that they're doing that because with huge problems comes enormous opportunities to rewrite something yes. that is better and safer and helps more folks. So I hope, I hope, and I hope that's you I know, do too. on the people internal at those companies, you don't have to be the CEO, CFO, who's counting the numbers, whatever, to just strike change and say like, we need to do this. Someone eventually got to Apple and said like, well, you have to build period stuff into Apple health. Like this is yeah. fucking ridiculous. So yes. whoever those people are that, that accomplished that, let's, let's take that further. I don't want to keep you forever here. Swapna, as I kind of mentioned you offline, per our purposes, saving the world, rebuilding a better world isn't just about being some scientist or CEO or policymaker. It's art and journalism and data and ethics about all those. And there's millions of young and old and in between people who want to do what you do, right? Who want to mm-hmm. carve a place for themselves, however yes. uh, difficult that can be, and offer their perspectives and their lived experiences to help us imagine something that is better. Um, whether it's solar punk or whatever. What sort of practical, specific lessons, tips, resources, whatever you got, you might you have for people who are looking to model at least the beginning of their careers or art on something like your own? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I would recommend is write. Like, like I got my start writing on a blog, like writing on a personal blog on Blogger. And People resonate with honest, authentic writing. It's easy to do. And I think, I think, Putting your writing out there, even if you don't think anybody's going to read it, I think that's one step that's very important. One thing I highly, highly actually recommend for people who are active on social media, which if you aren't active on social media, that's something you probably should do if you are interested in building a platform. NASA runs these incredible programs, and they just started them back up in person post the lockdown. Mm-hmm. It's called NASA Social. And this okay. is actually how I got my started in really deciding I wanted to cover science. They invite social media users and you don't have to have a huge platform. It's very much, you just have to be authentic and be excited about this stuff. They invite people with, you can have 100,000 followers. You can have, I know there were people there with like 60. It's fine. They, they look at your authenticity and how, how excited you are. And they'll invite you to like behind the scenes things of rocket launches. And oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's super cool. I saw two launches from a NASA social, the la- second to last launch of the space shuttle, Atlantis, oh. and Orion EFT-1, which was the test for Orion 2014. I will be honest, it was better experience than covering a rocket launch as a journalist. Sure. Like more access, really cool speakers. They have like astronauts come and talk to you, people who works on the missions. You get to like tour the NASA's vehicle assembly building. It's incredible. It is the best experience. It's just, it's one of those things that is like a life changing moment. Like Mm -hmm. that is when I decided like, oh, and it gives you like, sounds like odd to just be like, apply for this thing. But I feel like that's what gave me credibility. Like live tweeting NASA, like the NASA stuff was what made me realize like, oh, maybe I have a knack for this. Yeah. And maybe I'm really good at this like short form communication. That's like a very like narrow practical thing you can do if you are interested in space specifically. Mm -hmm. But larger than that, I really do think that writing authentically is a very good entry point into, you know, being able to talk about this stuff, you know. The JWST pictures that came out that are amazing, like, write a response to that. You know, you can write a response to that, write about what's happening. All these materials that we work with are public, like, they're from NASA's office. So, like, write a response to that and see if it resonates with people. Share it with your family, share it with your friends, see if it resonates. And, like, having this track record, even if it's just your personal stuff, is really helpful because, you know, I was able to transition into writing about space and science and technology because I started a free newsletter 
and I showed that I had the ability to write about this stuff. You know, somebody just posted an open call for pitches on Twitter and I was like, all right, I'm just going to send this and yeah, be like, look, it. I have this track record. I can write for you. Like, sure. look at, I, I've done this for free. Pay me to write for you. And that's how all this started. And you know, the other thing about writing is it just, even if you don't share it, but you should, it clarifies your own thoughts on mm-hmm. some of these things mm-hmm. in ways you might truly not have anticipated, or maybe yeah. you hopefully did because you're just sitting here going like, what do I think about these incredibly complicated things? Like you said, can't often be summed up in eight to 11 minute videos, even with the best of intentions, like work, yes. work it out, you know, and there's yeah. always going to be people who want to engage on these things. And I understand it's scary. There's definitely some shitty folks out there, especially people of color or uh, trans. It sucks. Um, it sucks it often, does. but there's also some incredible supportive folks out there who who are looking for your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I will say my little Twitter community is so positive and so supportive. Oh, like people, awesome. I very rarely get hate this days. And I genuinely think it's because I come to things from an authentic place and I'm not cynical. And mm-hmm. like, I just try to be like, hey, if you love what you love, that's okay. Here's what I love. Sure. That's okay too. I think talking to people in that way is very, I think it's very validating for a lot of people. People feel seen. Sure. I love that. That's super helpful. I wish I could go back in time and watch one of those shuttle launches. I'm so jealous. Um, You still can. I mean, seriously, like they're still running the program. It's so cool. Like it's a specific thing. Oh, yeah. For, past, for 80s like, kids, like the, it yes. checks a real box. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. I got a few quote unquote quick lightning-ish questions for you. Yes. And then we'll get you out of here because you're a very busy human. First time in your life when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful, either solo or with a little squad, whatever it might have been, fifth grade science, running for office, whatever. When were you like, oh, shit, I can kind of move the needle on something. This is interesting. That is such an interesting question. Oh, my God. I don't even think it was when I was like young, like sadly, like I just I don't think I don't think I ever felt like I had the power to change anything. I think it was like when I started, I got into my original blog where I first started writing online was book reviews. Mm -hmm. When I started, I think it was just like when I started reviewing books and people started reading them and then the book started doing well and Mm -hmm. people would tie a book doing well to my review of it. I think that was it. I was like, I can change something. I'm not saying I made any book a bestseller, but like people would buy a book because I I reviewed it. I think a lot of my childhood, I felt powerless, like, Mm. you know, and so I think, I think a lot of what I do today is reflects that. I love that. That's awesome. Book reviews. Oh man. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I could spend all day on that. Swapna, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Oh, my God. In the past six months? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I, to- I was We gonna, talked was- about constraints. We got to get specific here. Yeah. Oh, in the past. Who has positively impacted my life in the past six months? Impacted your work in the past six months. Or impacted my work uh-huh. in the past six uh-huh. months. Oh, these are hard. Okay, <laughs> let me think. Good news. We're um, not live, so take your time. Okay. Okay. Okay, good. Okay. Okay. So I think somebody who has positively impacted my work in the past six months, one thing that's been on my mind very heavily over the past few weeks has been these JWST images Mm -hmm. and like how this observatory is going to transform our relationship with, you know, with the universe and space around us. And so I'm in a group of uh, female space reporters, a Slack group, informal thing, but just these are the people who I want to be a better reporter and a better writer because of how good these people are. Uh, Lauren Grush at The Verge, Marina Corrin at The Atlantic, Miriam Kramer at, uh, she's at Axios, uh, Megan Bartels at Space.com, Nadia Drake's National Geographic. Like I see their work and I want to do better. They make me want to do better because they are so good at what they do. And- I love that. That's such a great answer. See, we got there. It's great. Yeah. They do such good work. That's the best, isn't it? There's no both like better and worse feeling than reading something and you're just like, I should quit. But also like, how do I get there? I don't know if you followed Marina Corrin's space coverage at The Atlantic, but every single thing she writes, I am like, I don't understand how she came up with this angle. We're all writing the same story. I don't understand how she did it. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. I want my brain to work the way her brain does to see these nuggets of story and the 
weird, amazing, beautiful angle she comes up with. And she is just, uh, she's so good. Ed, speaking of the Atlantic, and this is, I mean, like picking Babe Ruth, but Ed Young is one of those for me. Oh, God. Um, whether it's COVID stuff, uh, just incredibly impactful, and he was awarded for that, or it's, he wrote about fucking hummingbirds a few days ago, and you're just like, this yeah. is amazing. It's so good. And his new book's about animals. Incredible. Incredible. Swapna, what's your self-care? It's important for all these people who want to be like you and do all these things to recognize that it's also hard and it's taxing and, and you're mm-hmm. also a, a, a mom and a partner. So how do you take care of yourself? Because we all got to do a slightly better job of that. I play video games. That's what I do. There you do. go. It of is course. My, right. Yep. It's my self-care. It's, it's, it is. And it's genuinely, it's not just something I write about because mm-hmm. I'm paid to write about it. Like I got the new Steam Deck, which is like mm-hmm. the handheld computer. So oh, yeah. I've been like taking... Oh my god, so good. As advertised. So good. I oh, love it. Shit. Yes. Okay. I I was hoping it wouldn't be on a screen so <laughs> I, I could know, just like right? sell it and move on. But I have like Gar like I put Mass Effect Legendary Edition on there and I just mm-hmm. have Garrus Vicarian with me wherever I go and it feels very good. Like it's just yeah. like I like sit in bed and play Mass Effect while my kid is like <sighs> laying beside me reading uh, like or like playing Lego sure. game on his iPad or like it is one of those things where like Honestly, going to the basement and turning on the console has become a little bit of like, ugh, I don't want to like do that because sure. like, in 20 well, this minutes is what, I'm like, just going to have to get up yeah. and do something else. So like it like it helps with that a lot. But one of the things I've been running into on the Switch is like there aren't like the game selection is good, but like a lot yeah. of the games I want to play aren't necessarily Some on there. Some classic play- incredible stuff, but Mass Effect on the go is like that's both amazing and kind of trouble for me. Literally, I got the Steam Deck like last week. I think and I've already gone th- gotten through the entire first game on my <laughs> Mass Effect Two now. <laughs> this is how much I've been playing because it really is like I'm like okay, I have 30 minutes to eat, mm-hmm. and I've been trying to eat away from my computer and not like just work and like shovel food in my mouth. I like go sit at the table and I'm like okay, I have 30 minutes. What do I do? I just play Mass Effect for like 30 minutes, and then I can just immediately turn it off and go do something else. And the battery only lasts about two hours, which is actually that's great. For- I need that. I know exactly. And he's like, sorry. That battery life's terrible. I'm like, no, (laughs) it's great. Because like, I like, it's like two hours into Ah, it max. That's the dream. It's fantastic. I wish my phone's battery life was like 45 minutes and then I couldn't charge it till tomorrow. That would be the dream. Mass Effect. That's so good. Mm -hmm. All right. Last one. And constraints. What is a book you've read this year that has either opened your mind uh, to a topic you hadn't considered before or changed your thinking in some way? Book I've read this year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. This year. So this is not going to be like traditionally. Doesn't matter. What you think of like as opening your mind. It's very personal. Like everything else. It's very personal for me. 100%. Uh, so Roshni Chokshi, who uh, she writes a lot of like middle grade and YA fiction. She's amazing. A incredible writer. I love her books. She wrote a short story for the anthology I co-edited, Swordstone Table. Mm-hmm. She's incredible. But she's having her adult debut come out. I think it's next year. Okay. Um, and uh, she's a friend, so I was like, send me the manuscript, I want to read it. Mm-hmm. So I read it, I finished it, and it is this, like, super atmospheric, like, gothic novel, like, like one of those books that's just, like, dripping with atmosphere. Think, like, a Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. like just, like, dripping with Jane Eyre, like, the gothic, like, really sure. close, thick atmosphere, and I was like... I want to try and write a book like this. Yeah. I've always said I'm never going to write fiction, mm-hmm. A. And B, I had never really considered that maybe I can write something like this. Mm-hmm. But, like, just the way she wrote it, I'm like, I might do this and fail, but I want to try and do it. Because this is just so good that, like, I would regret it if I never tried. And, I like, that. it's so cool. And so, like, yeah, it's not exactly, like, traditionally, like, what the, you were asking with the question, but it opened my worldview to be, like, maybe... I don't think it'll be easy and I don't think, you know, like, but it's just like reading this book, just like it hit something in me to be like, I want to try and write like this. And she is so good. And I will never be able to write as well as Roshni. But like I texted her and I was like, oh, my God, this book made me want to. And she was like, oh, my God, she's like, you you should do it. Like, and I'm like, I'm going to try. And so, yeah, I love that. The, Um, the, The book is the last it's like it's the last tale of the flower bride, and I think it's coming out next year. All right. Well, we'll when it comes out, we'll it's put really, it out. We have a whole bookshop list, and we'll we'll throw it on there. It's um, really good. That's awesome. I love that. You should totally try your hand at fiction. I want to try in like, all it of might your be free nothing. time. It might be terrible, but let's 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 tr- let's knows? try to do it. It reminds yeah, no, me of all the free time. I went to liberal arts college, and I you know how many kids showed up, and they're you know for ten years they're like going to be a doctor, going to be a doctor, going to be a doctor, and then they take some 
random ass liberal arts class and they're like, I don't know, maybe I'll study, you know, specifically 1640 to 1670 religious history. And you're like, what? Exactly. But you just never know exactly. until you know. Um, you never know. I love that. Uh, Swapna, thank you for all of your time and for um, all of the incredible work you do across your many platforms and putting yourself out there. We're all, uh, we all benefit from it and I'm thankful for you and it and uh, for, for chatting with me today. Of course. I had a lovely time. This was wonderful. Thank you for having me. Always. Where can our uh, listeners follow you on the internet? What's, what do you, what's your um, preferred? I'm on Twitter way too often probably at S. Krishna. It's okay. Twitter and Instagram at S. Krishna and TikTok at Swapna underscore Krishna. Awesome. And Far Out is on PBS Terra's YouTube channel. Okay. And number three on Cannabis comes out when? July, I believe the uh, the... Next, oh, let's see. I should know this off the top of my head. July, the third episode comes out July 28th. All right, all right, rock and roll. Well, I'm excited uh, to dig into that. So thank you, and um, yeah, good luck with the sinkhole. Thank you so much. It's amazing. <laughs> all right. Oh, my God. I'm this gonna... is lovely, by the way. I had so much fun. Oh, you're so, so I'm, sweet. Thank you for asking. It's a delight, truly. It's such a privilege to be able to talk to folks like yourself. Your work is fantastic. It's, Thank it's you. Fantastic. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the show. A reminder, you can send feedback or questions about this episode or some guest recommendations to me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Links to anything we talked about today are in your show notes in your podcast player. If you want to rep any or your shit giver status, you can find sustainable t-shirts, hoodies, and a variety of coffee delivery vessels in our store at importantnotimportant.com slash store. You can subscribe to our critically acclaimed weekly newsletter for free at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com. Our theme music was composed by Tim Blaine. The show was edited by Anthony Luciani, and the whole episode was produced by Willow Beck. We'll see you next time.